So when the handwriting on the wall looked pretty plain that something big was about to happen in this country about a month ago, it was recommended to me that I get a copy of the 1948 novel by the French-Algerian author Albert Camus entitled The Plague. You can accuse me of being morbid. I thought I would just try to live the moment. But in that novel, even though it's a fictional account of a real plague that affected the people for a long amount of time, it's renowned for its ability to describe what happens to a people when they undergo the threat, the specter of disease for any length of time. Now, the plague that he describes in his novel is like nothing about what this country is facing at a time like this. But there is certainly a relevance to be found in what he speaks of because at the front end of that plague and of any virus that affects a people, initially the, the, a people is galvanized to action uh, to respond with great concern and creativity in how to limit the spread of the virus and take care of one another. But Camus does a wonderful job of imagining what befalls a people when that lingering crisis starts to erode something profound in them that what they had on the front end, something gets lost. And about two thirds of the way through the book, he characterizes that people under the specter of disease by putting it this way. They retained the attitudes of sadness and suffering, but they had ceased to feel their sting. Without hope, they lived for the moment only. Indeed, the here and now had come to mean everything to them plague had gradually killed off in all of us the faculty not of love only, but even of friendship. Since love asks something of the future, nothing was left but a series of present moments. Now, that's as bleak a characterization as you might imagine. And we might again say, yeah, man, great, that's a, a fictional novel, and yet there is a reality to it we should reckon with. Last week, David Brooks wrote an op-ed piece again entitled, soberly, Pandemics Kill Compassion Too. And in that article, he catalogs several historical moments on what it does to a people, both during and after, in the wake of a pandemic. And he cites the British preacher by the name of Daniel Defoe, who wrote um, a journal about what it was like in the year of 1665 and the plague. And in that season, it was true of this. This was a time when everyone's private safety lay so near them that they had no room to pity the distresses of others. The danger of immediate death to ourselves took away all bonds of love, all concern for one another. That's not a novel, that was history. And while the bubonic plague that hit Britain in the 1660s is still nothing of the sort of what we're facing now. It's not yet like that. It may never be like that for us. There is still something to be considered about what happens to a people under duress for a long amount of time. The initial surge we've seen of compassion and grace and concern, but should it linger, is it possible that we begin to shed our virtues? Is it possible that we will be tempted to discard something important and vital to our own hearts and to our world? Almost on the very earliest moments of Jesus' public ministry, he found himself straight in the face of temptation, temptation that he sought 
And in that moment, he prevailed. And the argument that I'm going to bring from the text that we're going to look at today is, as we ask the question, not only how are we going to survive the virus or survive its impact, but also how are we going to survive the temptations we face now and afterwards, my answer to that is for us to look at Jesus. I know, shocking for a pastor to argue for that. But what does it mean to look to Jesus if we want to survive temptation in a time of virus or at any time? We're going to look at that question from three angles. Why do we look to Jesus to survive temptation? Because of who and what he struggled with, because of how he struggled, and because of what his struggle accomplished. Who and what he struggled with, how he struggled, and what his struggle accomplished. We're going to let Michael Casoria read to us a text that you may have heard a thousand times, or this may be your first time. But if you're so inclined, I wonder if you might stand in order to give your fullest attention to a text about how Jesus prevailed over temptation. Today's central text can be found in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Just prior to this point, Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan River. He has come to identify with the people he's come to rescue. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. And right then and there, Luke says, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into a wilderness. Why? To be tempted. Yeah, but why? It's a great question. I'm not going to answer it yet. Stand by. We'll get there. The question I want to ask and answer is, why do we look to Jesus if we want to survive temptation? And the first answer is because of who and what he struggled with. Who did he struggle with? It's very clear. Plain as day. It says he struggled with the devil, the tempter. The one we know as the accuser, the enemy, the deceiver, the one elsewhere that uh, John's gospel speaks of is the one who's out to steal, kill, and destroy. That is who Jesus is out to struggle with. And as soon as I say the word devil, there may be some of you that are listening going, devil? Really? Really? Isn't the devil at best an antiquated, threadbare, imaginary belief in evil? 
have gotten rid of as soon as we could have. Isn't the devil just the personification of our collective projections of whatever we associate with the idea of evil? You know what? Maybe. But if you'll consider just for a moment, suspend your disbelief for just a moment. If, if you can believe that there might be, in fact, a God, a personal, spiritual, intelligence, a presence that is responsible for everything that you're looking at and everything that you can't see, if you can at least countenance that as a possibility, why can't there also be a personal, spiritual presence that is entirely opposed to that God's will? Why can't there be? If there's a God, why can't there be a devil? And secondly, it may be the case that you believe that evil is entirely of a human origin. That whatever we see in human history or in ourselves that reflects the wickedness that we are distraught over and seek to quell whenever we can, that maybe you believe that's entirely of human origin. And you can be that and you can believe that and that may be true. But if you'll just consider this, Jesus speaks openly and frequently about the devil. It's just not an ancillary part of what he has to talk about. And therefore, if in fact the devil is a delusion or a projection, then for Jesus to speak as often and as profoundly as he does about the devil, then he is either absurdly delusional or patently wicked and deceptive. And if you think that's true, you have to square that with what else you know of him. He believed in the devil. And so none of that proves anything. But if all it does is help you to perhaps temporarily suspend your disbelief at just to hear him out, I encourage you to do so. Now, for some of you, you didn't need to hear that. My point is just saying this. Jesus is contending, is struggling, not just with temptation, but with the tempter. Not just an inner struggle, but a struggle with an external force that means no good and all harm for him. That's the tempter. And why that matters is, if I want to look to Jesus, in my struggle with temptation, I want to look to somebody that knows a thing or two about temptation and from how he considers the source of it. Look, if you get sick for any reason and you have your choice whether to be treated by a freshly minted resident or someone who is the chief of staff who has been in the trenches of the medical profession for years or decades at a time, I know who you'd pick. I know who would I pick. If there is a force that is acting upon me, I want somebody who can tangle with that and not flinch in that. Look, if, if, if there is in fact a being in this universe who is eminently and entirely opposed to the will of God, then I want somebody who can stare into the face of evil and not flinch. Jesus did, and that's why we look to him. He is looking not just at temptation, but at the tempter. That's the who he struggled with. But the who has as much to do with the what he struggled with too. Look, we should all regard the fact that apparently the devil had high regard for Jesus because he doesn't send one of his underlings, he goes himself. And if you listen to the temptations that he brings to Jesus, you realize that the devil is a brilliant tactician. What are the most devilish and fiendish among us? Those who know how to push just the right buttons, who know how to come and take advantage of what may be a real potential weakness in us. It's where the devil goes with Jesus. Three times he brings temptations right before Jesus 
to speak to what Jesus might be most threatened with in that moment. And the first temptation seems as straightforward as possible. It's theology right on the top of the page. The first temptation, what do we find Jesus being asked? He's been in the desert for 40 days. And for whatever reason, Luke sees fit to tell us that after 40 days with no food, Jesus was hungry. Imagine. And the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Now, the, the devil is in no way unclear about who Jesus' identity is. He's meant to be provocative. He's trying to provoke Jesus to do something that Jesus might regret later. And the question is, what is he out to provoke? What is he out to do in Jesus that would rise to the level of what we would call a temptation? What's he out to provoke? Jesus is hungry. He says as much to Jesus, hey man, you're hungry. Make some challah bread. At least make some matzah bread. You're hungry. Daddy did not pack you a lunch. You're hungry. It's time for you to eat. And Jesus refuses. Why? Is he, is his father against food? Does he have a problem with bread? John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. He sends the disciples off to do what? To get food. In all of the Gospels, kid comes with five loaves and two fish. And what does Jesus do? He multiplies the bread for the multitude to eat. So the issue is not about food. It's not about what's in his belly. So what is it about? All right, rewind. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God gives the first pair a pretty clear command. All this trees, all this fruit, it's for you. This one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. Don't eat it. Fruit's there, don't eat that. And they hear it. And they see the fruit that's on the tree of the knowledge of the good and the evil. And it says the fruit looked pleasing and good for food. And in time you hear them say, I was hungry and I ate. Was it about the fruit? Or was it about their faith in who God is? Jesus' temptation here in Luke chapter 4 is not about what might or might not be in his belly. The temptation is about whether he would believe that whether God was good. This is an issue not about food, not about sustenance, not about deprivation. This is about what he believes God to be. The devil has told him, it doesn't look like your father is good. It doesn't look like he is enough. He didn't pack you a lunch. You should take matters into your own hands because apparently he doesn't look out for your best interests. And in that moment, for Jesus to succumb to that temptation would be for him to believe that his father is not good. Why does that matter to you and me right now? You are either approaching what may be a wilderness or you might already feel like you're in one. And what you maybe are at a threat to lose or what might already be losing in that moment, you might be beginning to have a thought in your head wondering to yourself whether in fact God is good, whether he's good enough. And crises do this. Crises naturally bring this out in us. Stuff happens, we don't know what to do, we don't know where to look, and we begin to have certain thoughts, we start to make certain deductions, and then we begin to wonder to ourselves, is that which I formerly trusted worthy of my trust? You and I will never be tempted with whether we're gonna turn stones into bread. That's one thing I can help you rest assured about. You will never face that temptation. But here's the temptation that you and I have faced, may face, will face. When what you're accustomed to relying upon is something that you can no longer rely upon, does your reliance upon God's goodness go with it? 
that's the temptation that we all face. His temptation is our temptation, and that first temptation is certainly ours too. It's a question about whether we will believe that he is good. Yes. The second temptation is whether Jesus is going to trust in God's greatness, in his glory. You and I may have seen any number of fantasy films that it is not difficult to imagine the scene that Luke portrays of the devil taking Jesus on this sort of fast-forward tour through all the authorities and kingdoms of the earth. And he makes this offer to Jesus, this Faustian bargain. If you'll, I'll give you the authority over all of these kingdoms. You can have all of its power, all of its prestige, all of its glory, if you'll just bend the knee to me. And what's at the bottom of that temptation, uh, as high and otherworldly as that moment sounds, is Jesus is being offered this temptation. Are, is he going to live for the glory of his Father, or is he going to live for his own glory? And as maybe different and abstract and as unfamiliar as that sounds, I might say to anybody who's listening, that temptation is everyone's temptation. It's the storyline of humanity. Where do we find our glory? For whose glory do we live for? Because here's the deal. The desire to be regarded and esteemed and welcomed and cherished and blessed that desire is real, it's natural, you don't have to be told to do that, it just naturally occurs, and it's totally unproblematic. There is no problem with desiring to be welcomed and esteemed and regarded in all those ways. The problem enters in, in the means we take and the lengths we go to establish that glory. Because whenever we take it upon ourselves to find our own glory, more often than not, there is carnage in our wake. And that is the temptation that Jesus is faced with in that moment. Live for his own glory or live for his father's. Now, how does that temptation apply to anybody, especially now in a time of virus? Two ways I'll give you. In one sense, in our moment, it is not so much about glory seeking as it is about glory losing. And by that, I mean, there is so much that you and I can build our lives around, which whether we know it or not, is our sense of identity, our sense of glory, that when that importance is threatened because of a crisis, because of a loss, because of uncertainty, something happens really fundamentally in us. Uh, last night I was watching on Facebook David Wilcox, the local Ashevillian, giving a, um, a free concert for everybody to listen to, and in one moment in between songs he got really candid for a moment. He says in that moment where he's having to go off tour and live in his living room and play music through a screen on Facebook, he says to himself, my identity of finding my identity in being useful, that's, that's out the window right now. And he's having to kind of recalibrate his entire existence. And that, friends, we all feel in miniature in some ways. When your identity, when your glory is being useful or being engaged in this or that way and all that gets taken from you, well you've just tapped in to this little sort of thing that can grow into a big thing. And if you order your life and your importance and your glory upon things that can be taken from you in a time of virus or in anything, you lose yourself. You go for despair. And that is everyone's temptation. Not so much in the glory seeking, but in the glory losing. Now, to be sure, this temptation also rears its head in a time of glory seeking. And there is no time, like in a time of crisis, in which we can bump into this. 
how many bold efforts do we see placarded about this world online or elsewhere that give all the impressions of deep selflessness and sacrificial nature and yet if we were to be really honest and to get beneath the surface of what motivates it it's not about selflessness it's about self-interest that in the unimaginable efforts to do good it's mostly mostly about building the brand than it being really a sacrificial source. I'll be frank with you as your pastor. I have heard the siren call of wanting not so much to be helpful, but as to be seen as heroic. And in a time of crisis, or at other times where you are able to fill in the gap, the desire to live for your own glory, it looms. It looms large. And his temptation is our temptation. But this third and final temptation the devil offers, it's probably the, the hardest to get our head around about what's at stake here, what's, what's the issue? The devil takes him to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and says, hey man, throw yourself down. God, your father, has promised to protect you at every turn. Well, let's see, let's see. Don't you wanna know? Don't you wanna be sure? And in that moment, we ask ourselves, what would be the problem in that? There's plenty of moments in Jesus' public ministry in which God has protected him from harm. Plenty of moments and when it's about to get handed to him, when violence is about to befall him and a door opens, a way opens, and he's able to elude that problem at that time because it was premature. It wasn't his hour. So what is the problem of triggering God's protective measures for the Son? What's wrong with that? Everything is wrong with that. The first temptation was whether he would trust in God's goodness. The second temptation was whether he would trust in God's greatness and glory. This third temptation is whether he's going to trust in God keeping his promise. Is God's promise sure? Can he be trusted? Kids test caregivers and parents often when they're younger. Some of you are familiar with that. Teachers, caregivers, aunts, uncles, parents, you know that story. And why do they test us? Sometimes they test us to get a, get a laugh. Sometimes they do stuff and act out in order to get kind of attention, whether it's positive or negative attention. But sometimes they test us in order to know if our love is real. Say stuff, do stuff, want stuff to see if we'll stick around, if we'll in fact demonstrate the same love that they wonder if it'll be there. They're not sure if that love is present or if it's enduring. And the part of the way you know a child is maturing is when they come to trust in the love of the caregiver and the parent even when that caregiver's love is absent. For Jesus, that is not an issue. He knows of his Father. He knows of his love. He knows of his presence. He doesn't have to test it. And as a consequence of that belief, he will do nothing to try to test his father's goodness or his promise. And as a consequence of that belief, he will withhold nothing back from his father either. He will make everything available to his father because he trusts in his promise. If there is a film you should see during this time of quarantine, if you can stomach it, it is the movie I might recommend to you called A Hidden Life. It's based on a true story about an Austrian farmer and his family, a farmer who is who is conscripted into the Nazi army, but refuses to sign a pledge of allegiance to Hitler. And for that, he is imprisoned. Before that, he is ridiculed by his own people. In prison, he is persecuted. 
And in Terrence Malick making that film and in telling that story, he makes it a point to show us that on at least three different occasions of people who come to Franz Jägerstater and ask him the question about why he's doing what he's doing in refusing to comply with the will of the Fuhrer. And they ask him, do you think this act will matter? Do you think this act will be seen by anyone that you trust or love or respect? Do you think anyone will know what you're doing? And in the very last frame of the film, I won't ruin it for you, there's a quote that Malik marshals from the author George Eliot who says this, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Franz had to ask himself whether there was any promise in the choice that he made, in the conviction that he lived by, and only by believing in that promise would allow him to continue in his way. Friends, you and I might never, ever have to face such a monumental choice as that. But you remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon about what we're threatened to lose in a time of prolonged illness and pandemic. Love, friendship, compassion. Those are the things we risk losing, that we're tempted to discard when the things become hard over a long haul, and we are tempted to withhold that, even though in love and in friendship and compassion, God has made us promises as to their fruitfulness and their purpose. If we fail to believe that he is good or that his promise is sure, then we will withhold those things that we will need to express. And therefore, Jesus' temptation is ours. And that's why we follow him. And that's why we look to him in our temptation. Because of who and what he struggled with. How did he struggle? How did he struggle in the moment? It's uncomplicated. Every single temptation, Jesus offers the same response. He quotes the words his father has given to him. The words of Deuteronomy, of all places. Words that are for him his guide and his guardrails. At every single instance, he recites back to the devil scripture. Even when the devil starts to play Jesus at his own game by quoting the Psalms, Jesus helps quote another text to put that text in context. He's out to show us something by the way in which he struggles with temptation. In the very first scene of uh, Steven Spielberg's version of the story and the life of Abraham Lincoln, uh, the 16th president is sitting um, restfully among a platoon of soldiers about to move out at a munitions depot. And there he strikes up a conversation, an impromptu conversation with several soldiers, and they're all just sort of astonished at the fact that they're having a conversation with the very president in whose name they are fighting as Union soldiers. And they begin to ask him um, questions about himself. And then they also feel suddenly inspired to recite back to him some of the lines from the Gettysburg Address. And I wanna show you just a brief clip from that moment to let you consider what they thought those words meant to them. Hey, how tall are you anyway? Gee, shut up. Could you hear what I said? No, sir, not much. It was... Uh, four it was... score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth from this continent a new nation conceived in liberty to be dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's good. Thank you. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are... We are... We are met on a great battlefield of that war. That's 
That's good. Thank you. We come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. Yes. His uncles, they died on the, on the second well, day of fighting. I know the last part. It is, uh... Company out! It is rather... Move it out! Boys, best go and find your company. Thank you. Thank you, sir. God bless you. God bless you, too. God bless you. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Why did they make it a point to recite words that he knew had written had given and would live or die by. Why? Why recite those words? Why did they feel so compelled to do that? Because they knew that there was power in those words. They knew there was power that gave them courage, power that ascribed to some dignity where no one else would give them dignity, words that gave them resolve, that steeled their resolve for the fight before them. Those words to them were life. Those words were power. I use that illustration for this purpose, if those words had power for those men in that moment, how much more would the words that Jesus marshals from his own storehouse of knowledge of what God had said be powerful for him in his time of temptation? I ask you, what words of his do you have at the ready to answer your anxious moments, to answer your moments of loss, to answer your moments of fear? What words of his do you have so much at your fingertips that you're able to produce them at a moment's notice when temptation begins to swallow you up? Jesus is not just an example of self-control. He is demonstrating to us a picture of the potency of those words that he had chosen to arm himself with, words that would protect and defend him. That's how he struggled. And that's why we look to him in order to survive temptation. There's one last reason. What did his struggle with temptation really accomplish? Two things, one of which I've already kind of tipped my hand for you to see. In this battle of wills between the devil and Jesus, there is in the background another conversation that happened, which was also a conversation to be reckoned with, a conversation that, as you've heard me say, was in a garden. The first pair, they hear from God, and then they hear a serpent either misquote or distort the meaning of those words from God, and they bite on that distortion and everything is lost. Jesus has come to show us a new way, and therefore the reason he's come to enter into temptation there and look for us to do this. In this encounter with the devil, he has come to rewrite the story of humanity. In the Garden of Eden, it was lush. In his wilderness, he had nothing. In the Garden of Eden, they had everything they needed. Jesus, in that wilderness, didn't even have food. And in that Garden of Eden, they succumbed to temptation. And here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus succeeds and prevails against it. Jesus, what did he accomplish? He began to rewrite a story of humanity. He began to create and correct a new story. 
more importantly, what Jesus did in that moment was to prepare him for another moment. And you know that from the very last phrase of the passage. The devil does his temptations, Jesus resists every single one of them, and it says the devil backs off and says he waits for an opportune time. What could that mean? When would that be? It would fall right on the heels of the moment that we're celebrating today. For when Jesus was tempted there in Luke chapter 4, with all manner of temptation, he would face that again in an even more fierce way, and this time also in a garden. And we all wait with bated breath as Jesus was having to contemplate whether he would believe in three things, in whether God was good, in whether God was great, and in whether God would keep his promise. And in that moment in the garden, he asks the Father, is there any other way? And right on the heels of that, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had been prepared in the moment in Luke chapter 4 for an even fiercer experience with temptation there in his own garden. And his immunity had been made more robust as a consequence of it. An immunity against the deceptions and the distortions of the devil. An immunity against anything that might lead him astray from his intended purpose. So that what? So that he could walk with full face straight ahead with eyes wide open into death. Death on a cross. And why would he step face first into death on a cross? Because of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2. That through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the gospel. That's why we look to him if we want to survive temptation in a time of virus. Beloved, if this is anything, this text in Luke 4 is a call to belief, a belief in his unique a belief in his unique prevailing over temptation like no one had. It is a belief in him who was the one that was able to stare down the wiles of the devil and live to speak another day. Because in prevailing over temptation, he was able to walk into death and rise again such that it would mean this for us, our forgiveness, our reconciliation, our being given his spirit, that we might then in turn resist the schemes of the devil and flee from him until he then flees from us. This is a call to belief, a belief in the one that God has sent. It's a call to conversion, if you will. And C.S. Lewis never would have imagined that words he wrote so long ago would be so apt at a time like this when it comes to his speech about what it means to believe. He put it this way. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which always has existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God, and if we share in this kind of life, we also share the ones, the sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. This is a call to get infected. This is a call to believe. And it is finally a call then to use every means he employed to fight his own temptation. 
Jesus appealed to his word and was a model of that word. Jesus relied upon the assistance of his spirit and speaks to us of as a provision. But Jesus also implicitly was part of a beloved community. He was son of father and spirit who lived eternally as three yet one in community and in love. And if that is not a picture of what it means to face temptation in a beloved community, I don't know what is. If you think you can face it without others who love and who have learned to be loved by him, you fight as if with two hands behind your back. But the one means that we most must employ is that we stay at home and shelter in place in the one who prevailed against temptation. Why him? Why stay at home in him? Friends, this season is gonna rattle us, It perhaps. This season will challenge us. This season will, by all accounts, when it's over, change us. And though with his help, Lord willing, we will resist the temptation rather than succumb to it, it is quite possible that in the difficulty and distress of this day that there may be moments when we fail. And in moments like that, we want to run to him and shelter in place in him because in him is a grace that is greater than even my failures of succumbing to temptation. Sarah Woodward is an author and in an article that she wrote about what she learned from Satan, she said this, the worst thing I can do is believe that God's grace is not enough for me, that my badness renders me unredeemable. Such a belief really does hurt like hell. There are a lot of things I would not be able to uphold were they the crux of my salvation, like being a kind, moral, generous, selfless, overall good person all the time. But weak as I am, one thing I can do is accept God's forgiveness and grace. Beloved, I don't know how long this will last. I don't know what it will feel like to be normal again and when that will happen. I don't know that we will ever face the depths of distress that Camus or Daniel Defoe speak of in that season of plague and that people, but I do believe that temptation will be our lot in some form or fashion. And that is why we want to look to one who knew temptation, who prevailed over temptation, who had sympathy for those who would be tempted, but most of all, who would cover all those in their temptation, even in their failure, and they succumb to it. We need him and look to him to be infected by him that we might face these days with grace, with hope, with forgiveness, with repentance, and perhaps with new power to resist the very temptation that we need. Amen.